So we have three readings this morning from the Gospel of Matthew. The first one comes from chapter 5, verse 38 to 39. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And from verse 43 to 48. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And from chapter 7, verse 1 to 6. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Well, this week we're in the third part of our series on crossing the aisle. And the point of this series is, is to look at the, the psychological and the social gap that is between people in society that... Um, Especially in the West, we're discovering it's, it's really causing a problem of communication and understanding of people that are not like you. Um, and in some cases, in times of polarisation in society, which happens every now and again, we can even find ourselves suspicious and hostile or people being suspicious and hostile of us. The image of crossing the aisle is from American politics where... Um, in, uh, they talk about when a, a politician from one side of politics crosses the aisle to talk to another person from the other side to try and bring consensus and unity and understanding. This is an image of, um, you know, great uh, leadership and, and humanity um, to put aside, uh, you know, your political um, preferences and point scoring to be able to uh, do what's best for the country. And in the same way, Christians should learn to do that too uh, because we find ourselves like gathering together, hurting together, and sometimes not good at um, understanding people who are not like us. And, and we find ourselves nervous to even talk to people who are not like us. Um, not just people who ha have different political views to us, but people who also have um, come from a different walk of life to us, who look different to us, sound different to us, um, who have different types of education and so on. We should cross the aisle to be with people not like us. Why? Because we worship a God who crossed the aisle from heaven to earth to be with us. 
in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And we worship a Jesus who in his life crossed the aisle uh, to be with people on the margins. And we worship a Jesus who died on the cross for people not like himself, but for his enemies. So for all these reasons, um, we should cross the aisle. And last week we had the amazing speakers of Grace and Michael who were from Palestine and Egypt. And they talked about how um, God is a God who shows no preferences to people of of, of culture, different cultures. They looked at the passage from Acts where Peter had the, the vision of clean and unclean food and God revealed to him that not only is there no such thing as clean and unclean food anymore, but this is the same with all people. Uh, all people are, are clean in God's eyes um, and he wants to um, bring the gospel to all people. And Peter had that shocking moment of seeing Cornelius, um, uh, sorry, the centurion um, uh, experience, receive the, um, what am I, my brain's going mushy, Cornelius, isn't it? Yep, thank you. Sorry, my brain just went mushy. Um, uh, receive the Holy Spirit. Um, and and Peter's, sho- like, Peter's shocked, you know, oh, so a Gentile can receive the Holy Spirit. Therefore, uh, the gospel is for all people. And they, and they made the point, uh, Grace and Michael made the point that, you know, in our culture, uh, the aisle is psychological and social. Um, uh, but in Palestine, they have a real wall made of concrete and barbed wire. You know, and this is the case in many parts of the world. And this week, we're going to look at this issue of judgment uh, because one of the main obstacles preventing Christians from crossing the aisle is the fear of being judged. We fear that we talk to people that are not like us and they'll say, you're a weird Christian, you're a bigot, or you're, you've got, uh, you're exclusive, or you, you're, you know, you're this or you're that. And that we're, we're fearing, I guess, that, that that will lead to judgment. And the flip side is also true that um, many people, when Christians talk to them, if they're not a Christian, can feel judged um, by Christians, even without before, before you say anything. Um, so it can go both ways for various reasons. Perhaps it's their lifestyle. Perhaps it's their, their um, finances that they've got or their race or their sexuality or their poverty or the shape of their body, the way they, they talk. Perhaps it's their disability, their religion. They, they can feel judged by, by Christians. And maybe it's just a perception or sometimes it might even be valid. So for all these reasons... We have to understand what role judgment plays in the crossing of the aisle. Um, what are we to do if we encounter people who really press our buttons and make us freak out a bit? My goal this morning is that we can have a clear Christ-like approach to the way judgment works, but going both ways. What are we to do? And what are we when we work like? We want to judge other people and when we feel judged about by other people. So to do this, let's first go back to Israel because I think you could probably, from looking at the readings, doesn't take much to work out what Peter's going to say this morning, right? Doesn't take much. But to get a deeper understanding, I reckon we should go back and look at what God did with Israel first and look at what's behind Jesus' very famous sayings in the Sermon on the Mount and in Matthew 7. To understand the Christian faith, it's really important to see the whole storyline. So when God chose Israel to be his chosen people, he wanted them to be set apart as holy and special. And next week, that's going to be the focus, looking at what it means to be distinctive. In the time of Moses, when they left Egypt, they were to remove all the pagan influence, 
all foreign customs so they could remain holy and set apart. So Leviticus chapter 11 says, I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves. That means make yourselves set apart and be holy because I am holy, says God. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves along the ground. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. Now, while they're to be set apart, this doesn't mean they're to have no contact at all with other nations. In fact, God would carry them on eagles' wings, it says in Exodus, to be his treasured possession, his kingdom of priests and his holy nation. They would be like a mediator of God's blessing to the foreign nations. God's blessing was always intended to go out to the nations, to the whole world, to all cultures. And Israel would be the vehicle for that. Then they will know that I am the Lord, God says in Isaiah. So Israel would be mediators of God's blessing. They would cross the aisle into surrounding cultures, bringing God's blessing with them. But they were also mediators of God's judgment as well. The two things go together. You can't separate them. This meant that when they crossed the aisle, they had the responsibility given to them by God of separating the righteous from the unrighteous. They were to be like Jonah going into Nineveh, preaching repentance. And sometimes, and this is what's hard to read sometimes when you read the Old Testament, if God demanded it, Israel was to mediate God's wrath on an evil and unrepentant nation. His anger. So, for example, when we read through Judges, in the Judges series, there was those challenging passages where Israel actually goes to war against the Philistines. This is an example of them carrying out their role as an instrument of God's wrath on an evil nation. And you might think this sounds like a God that is unpleasant, that you don't like. But strangely enough, in the Bible, God's judgment mediated through Israel was always good news to the oppressed who finally found a saviour, who finally had someone on their side. And God's judgment also, the flip side, was bad news for the evildoers who were finally punished. Now, with Israel as God's mediator, of course, there was a problem. And the problem is this. While they did act as a mediator of God's blessing and judgment, they also resisted God's plan and were tantalised by the immorality of the foreign nations. So they fell into idol worship and soon wanted a human king like the other nations instead of having God as their king. The pagan worship and foreign culture that they embraced meant that they struggled to be set apart and holy. In fact, they couldn't do it. They could not live in a holy way. So as mediators of God's blessing and judgment, they were completely flawed. And you can't have a flawed mediator, can you? So for this reason, God promised to send his servant, who would bring justice to the nations, who would also be a light and saviour to the Gentiles. So that these great words from Isaiah 42, you might know. 42 verses 1 to 4. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. 
In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. So God sent his son Jesus as his servant, his spirit-anointed servant, who would bring true justice to the nations. He could be the judge that Israel could never be. Jesus lived the perfectly obedient life. He was truly set apart. He was holy just as his Father in heaven is holy. In fact, if you saw Jesus, you saw the Father. Jesus came as the perfect judge who judges in righteousness. And the, perfect, the idea of a perfect judge should cause you to clap your hands and get up and dance and party like we did yesterday at the Wesley Ann. You might think, now why would I do that? I, you know, you think of a judge and you get a bit scared they're going to, you know, send you to jail or something. No, think about the perfect judge. Psalm 96 says that even the creation celebrates this thought. Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound, and all that is in it, let the fields be jubilant, and everything in them, let all the trees of the forest sing for joy, let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. So if you're worried about Jesus, the Son of God, taking on this role as the perfect judge, let me tell you, you should turn your worry into celebration. Even the trees clap their hands. Think of it a bit like this. I, I think we get a bit of a taste of it when there's an election, uh, a federal election, and the person that you really wanted to win the election, the party you really wanted to win, wins. You know what that's like? It doesn't happen very often, but sometimes it does happen. And you're at the election party and you're with all your friends and you've, and you've been really hoping for a change in the government and it, you know, your, your party is the underdogs and then... Suddenly, you know, uh, Anthony Green gets in front of the camera and, on the ABC and, oh, you know, and we can see here the, the things has changed. And suddenly the votes are coming in and then, you know, suddenly your team wins. Uh, and you, you just get so excited um, because you have inside of you the, the expectation that your leader, your new leader, your new prime minister and your new party is going to make a huge change for, for the country now, your, your joy and excitement in your political leader is a bit misguided because we should know by now that in a few years' time they're going to get kicked out by either the, their own party in Australia now or um, by the electorate. And then they're not the Messiah. They're, they're just um, a, a human, flawed human being. But Jesus is the Messiah. So that anticipation that you have can be rightly placed in him as the perfect judge of the world. And the whole creation knows this. This is good news. Be comforted because Jesus is the perfect divine judge who has the power to declare you righteous if you put your faith in him. Scott Morrison can't declare you righteous. Julia Gillard could not declare you righteous. Donald Trump thinks he can declare you righteous better than anyone else, but he can't do it either. Only Jesus can do it. And so we should take this seriously, who he is. Because as Jesus revealed to us in the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, we should, be, we should rejoice but also be sobered. Because, you know, we see this image of him separating the righteous and the unrighteous, the sheep from the goats in Matthew 25. All the nations will gather before him, it says. Every nation, race and tongue, as it says in Revelation and he will separate people one from the other. Then he will welcome the righteous on his right and invite them to take their inheritance. For I was hungry, 
and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. But to those on his left, he will say, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord, then you are saved. And you should rejoice because he is the perfect judge. And you will receive your inheritance. But this picture of Jesus judging the sheep and the goats should also sober us and make us take him seriously and take our faith seriously. So as St Paul writes, we are to work out our faith in fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in us. Now, here's the important thing. Because Jesus is the perfect and divine true judge who judges in righteousness, Christians do not have that same role that Israel had as mediators of God's judgment. Jesus, the Son of God, has that role. So Jesus says in Matthew 7, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured against you. Just as we forgive because we have, we have been forgiven by, by God, so we are generous in our judgment of others because God has dealt generously with us. And you have to remember the plank in your own eye before you get finicky about the speck in your brother or sister's eye. Paul makes the exact same point in Romans chapter 2, verses one, verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. Now, there is an exception to this rule where uh, Jesus and St. Paul make it very clear that Christians can judge, and that is to each other. So Jesus gives an example where amongst um, the disciples, a hypothetical situation where one um, injures the other. It doesn't give specifics of how that occurs, causes offence or something that's quite serious. And, and Jesus says, if there's no repentance, then you are to excommunicate that person out of the community, right? And it gives a, give them lots of chances, two or three chances, go to them with the elders and all that, so on and so on. If they still won't repent, then you need to excommunicate them. Why? For the purity of of the community. You don't want the community to be um, polluted by, by this um, bad behaviour, evil behaviour. Paul says the same thing, like he deals with the issues in the Corinthian church where I think there was a, the guy, a guy who was sleeping with his stepmother. There's all these kind of dodgy things going on in, in the church. And Paul says, you know, you, you, you are to deal with these people. He says in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 12, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church are you not to judge those on the inside? God would judge those outside. And then he says, expel the wicked person from among you. So church discipline is the only time when Christians can judge, but it's judging each other and it's to be done in humility and grace. And it's something we're not very good at, I have to say. So what do you, what do, you do then if you cross the aisle and you do encounter uh, uh, evil or resistance? We already know we're not to judge. 
But what if it's full-on resistance? Well, Jesus says there to turn the other cheek in Matthew 5, 38. You've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. Now, the eye for an eye principle was pretty much the oldest law God ever gave to humanity. He gave it in the time of Noah. Maybe not as old as the law he gave to Adam and Eve. The next law after that. Um, and it was a law of pr- proportionality. So the idea is, if you read just the bit before the story of Noah, humanity was just killing itself and didn't know how to get order in society. So God gives this law, this law of proportionality, of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, so that if, if, if someone commits a crime, the punishment should fit the crime. A system of limited punishment it was. Now, much later, in the time of Moses, God added the Ten Commandments and other detailed laws in the Torah. And still the death penalty was included, um, but there was a lot, a lot more kind of a healthier system then um, that was, was implemented of law. But when Jesus came, he held his people to an even higher ethical standard. The eye for an eye law was about limiting vengeance with proportionality but Jesus, what he does is he forbids vengeance altogether. And he's not commenting on the civil courts here. He's talking about the ethics of the community, of the, of, of the disciples. He replaces the eye for an eye law with the, the law of love, non-resistance, generosity, and other person-centeredness. And when Jesus said this, it was scandalous. It was shocking you, you might be used to this idea of non-resistance because we've been through the 60s and we've had Martin Luther King and you've, you've sort of heard the John Lennon songs and you might think this is not that radical. But in Jesus' time, it, changed, it was radical. He's offering a new way to live, a new kind of world. He was revealing his kingdom. In his teaching, perhaps more than any other Jesus, he, he's developing here a stark contrast between the kingdom of God and the world. In the world, it's an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but in my kingdom, it's turned the other cheek. Hostile Jewish and Roman authorities would continually oppose the Christians with persecution and violence. And what did we learn about in the first week? Jesus became a slave. That's what the Christians are to do, become a slave. They will follow in the path of their Lord Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, became a slave for our sake and humbled himself in obedience to death on a cross, Philippians 2. So if you cross the aisle and meet with people who oppose you in the worst possible way, they actually physically hurt you, which let's face it is very relatively rare in Australia, you are to respond in love by not putting yourself in the role as a judge, exercising vengeance. You are not to return fire with fire, but you're to turn the other cheek. Jesus is saying if you're persecuted for your faith, you should not go to the courts to seek vengeance. And he's using this idea of turning the other cheek figuratively, but it's also more than that. He's trying to spark your imagination of what God thinks like. How does God think about these things? Well, apply that to your community, he's saying. The old ways of retaliation and self-protection must give way to a gentler, more forgiving approach to those we deem enemies. 
So it says in verse 40 of Matthew 5, And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. In fact, now that Jesus is the judge, we should love our enemies, saying here, Verse 43, you have heard it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. So Jesus teaches that as you cross the aisle, the new law he's teaching is about enemy love. Now, this is not about a feeling. Restraint and non-hatred for enemies was already part of the the, the Jewish law. But we're not talking about non-hatred, we're talking about love. And Jesus is saying this is a love that's an action. Um, all those examples he gives are, are an action. And God, he's saying God shows indiscriminate kindness to his creation. He makes his sun rise on the evil and the good, he says in verse 45. And so this is how you to live in the perfect way like your heavenly father. Anybody can love people who are lovable, he says. Anyone can be friends with people who are friendly. Anyone can love people who are just like them who have the same political views, the same taste in clothes, who send their kids to the same schools, who earn similar incomes. Anyone can do that. That shows nothing. That does not reveal any kind of internal spiritual change or enlightenment. It reveals no obedience whatsoever to Jesus Christ, to love people who are just like you. He says in verse 46, If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are, you not, even, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's not about feelings, the love of action. He's not saying you have to even like everyone. He's saying you actually have to love people in action and show that love physically. Become a slave like Jesus. So for the early Christians to love a Roman soldier who demands much of them is to walk the second mile. Turn the other cheek. So at a basic level for you here sitting here this morning, and for me, there's no place for us to have enemies in this congregation, is there? No place for us to have people who we don't really want to have anything to do with. But if you do have people like that, what you need to do is show physical love towards them. Um, Make the effort to practice love for enemies by showing that on congregation members. Do it in action. Invite people into your home. Uh, offer people who you find challenging actual physical support. Then when you cross the aisle and encounter people who rub you the wrong way or who even resist you physically, people who's, who offend you, people who stink, then you'll be able to show the action of love and, and, and show that you are living obediently. Jesus says one of the actions you can do is to pray for your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. One way we as a church can live out our calling to cross the aisle is to pray for our enemies on a regular basis. And we're to see our enemies from God's perspective. We should acknowledge our common humanity, that they are made in the image of God just like us. You can only passionately pray for your enemies when you see them as God sees them. Remind yourself that God loves you despite all your flaws So you should love others in the same way, despite their flaws. Perhaps you should imagine that one person at work or at uni who absolutely irritates you, who you cannot stand, 
who every time they walk in the room, you just cringe or just get churned up. Spend 15 minutes reflecting on how God loves them and created them in his image. Pray for them and do an act of kindness towards them. And see how your world will radically change. So what have I said this morning? Crossing the aisle to be with people not like you is scary because you fear being judged by others and they also fear being judged by you, let's face it. And Christians are called by Jesus not to judge. In contrast, Christians should love their enemy with a love that shows itself in action. And Christians should resist being judged in a spiritual way by praying for their enemy. You can resist spiritually praying for your enemy by seeing their enemy as God sees them, made in the image of God. And we do this to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. We do this knowing that Jesus is the perfect judge. We do not judge because we know that God loves us despite our sin. So we should do likewise with others. And we do not judge because we worship the perfect divine judge who actually gave up his life so that we could be forgiven and not receive the punishment that we deserved, but we could be reunited with God. Let's pray for for ourselves. Lord God, we pray that you... um, you can help us to do this. is hard teaching in some way, very famous teaching, but hard teaching to put into practice. And we pray that we can be a community that knows how to love our enemies, to not be judgmental of those outside the church, and to support one another within the community um, to do, be able to do this in a Christ-like way. Amen.